Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and I'm so thrilled today to be joined by the wonderful Hassan Minhaj to talk all about his latest comedy special, The King's Jester. And I wanted to start by talking about the opening of the special because I love the way that you go straight into an incredibly personal space in talking about male fertility and you and your wife trying to have a kid um, in terms of the way that it really just opens up the audience and brings them straight into your world and creates a sense of trust for you with them and also for them with you. And so I was really interested in and when was when was the moment in writing and conceptualizing the show that you realized that that was exactly how you wanted to go in right at the beginning because of what you could create from that? Yeah, I mean, that's such a great question. Um, well, first, when just considering the editorial choice to start with the secret to open the show with, you know, the literal line, do you guys want to know a secret? For four years, my wife and I, we were trying to get pregnant and we could not get pregnant and it was my fault. That started with just a writing exercise between me and um, my director, Prashant. He basically saw just pages of raw material that I had. And he was like, you need to bleed on the page. Tell me the five to 10 stories that you're the most scared to say, or you're actually the most humiliated to say. Because and it's such a great line by him. He was like, great comedy and great art does involve some level of risk and skin in the game and you know not to be crass here but it's like all right put my skin in the game you know what i mean like let's start there um and talking about fertility and specifically male infertility was just something i was really humiliated to talk about ashamed to talk about didn't want to tell my friends didn't tell my family um so for years when people were like hey why aren't you guys why haven't you guys started a family what's going on you're getting older and to kind of be carrying that and to also carry the guilt that it's usually framed as a women's issue, that it's my wife's quote unquote fault, when in reality, it's it's on me. That was pretty embarrassing to talk about. And having that story and finding levity in it, that was the first thing. The directorial choice, which I thought was really brilliant by Prashant, is when I'm sharing that story on stage live, the theater gets really quiet. Um, it's not the way you usually start a comedy show or comedy special. And one of the things that I wanted to do was bring the audience in. And I was telling Prashantas, how do we immediately get to bringing you in? Um, and so much of confession and honesty is in the eyes and in, in your face. So we just start on a one shot, a tracking shot. And it's me confessing that directly to the audience. First, you at home. Then if you notice, we go to the wide camera five, the camera eight, and we break out and you notice that I'm in a theater. But to start with the confession to the audience at home um, on Netflix, that was a, a choice that we made by design. Don't do this crazy rock star intro. Don't separate yourself from the audience. Go directly to camera and look at the people at home. And I, I mean, that was just a, a choice that we wanted to make. And I'm, I'm, I hope it translates. I, I love what you're saying there about the specificity of the camera as well, because it's also a unique thing to be delivering this material. And especially, like you said, with, with that intimacy to a live audience in a really large space, and then at the same time have the intimacy of the camera. And so, you know, like you're saying there, okay, we wanted to have this shot and then this shot. Was that something where throughout the show, you really had a strong sense of where the camera was and a strong idea based on the intimacy of different moments? Or, or was some of it just kind of connecting to the camera and thinking about the audience in the room? No, 100%. I think one of the things that we kept thinking about was there's moments of confession and there's mo moments of comedy. 
this balance between satire and sincerity that we're constantly vacillating between that I kind of naturally just do as a human being. Sometimes I'm just cracking a joke and then I'm like, but seriously, this is what I think. Um, and so one of the things that we wanted to do by design was those moments that are really powerful or confessional. Um, I know there is a tendency right now to TikTokify everything, to uh, kind of toy with people's emotions through editing and cutting or sound design or music design. And those moments, we actually just wanted to really simplify and focus on the face and focus on just like my eyes, the performance, and have me just really candidly in a raw fashion tell people at home. And so um, there's moments where we talk about the fertility stuff or why I named the show Patriot Act. You'll see these very intense close-ups. Um, and that was a choice by design to bring the Steadicam operator on stage. You're breaking the frame. You're, you're ruining all the other eight cameras. There's a guy on stage next to you. You know, every other camera is shot now. So those choices were made by design for those moments of like deep confession. I, I love how specific it is in terms of the thinking of, of the visual aspect for the audience for you. And yeah. I remember when you were on Trevor Noah and you were talking about thinking of it like a music concert or theater when you do stand-up shows. Totally. And you can see that with the whole design, you know, even just, okay, we are going to have a structure in the middle of the stage and what's that going to look like? It's not a chair, but it's a space that you can sit, but also move around and utilize. And yeah. what's the screen behind going to look like? And then even with sound, there's a moment where you, you know, you're talking about social media being on fire and trending after the Saudi episode of the Patriot Act yeah. and then there's an echo on the microphone and yeah. as everything's kind of coming through and yeah. and so what did that look like with you and Prashan really going through the material once you'd honed the writing and figuring out how you wanted to use all those different production design elements to heighten and really evolve the material that you're delivering yeah so the way the process works for us is Prashant will always say start with the PDF and let the PDF speak to you so if you're a creative person, you know this. Um, it always just starts with the Notepad app or a Google Doc, but that's gonna for a lot for a lot of times with me. That's the original kind of breath of inspiration. It starts there, and then we really try to figure out how do we honor what's being written here. Um, don't don't do anything gratuitous or oh, I really like this thing. I saw this thing on Pinterest or I saw this on a mood board, and then work backwards let the actual core idea breathe life into it. And so one of the things that we wanted to do is for certain moments that called for emotion or called for that echo on the microphone, you use those things sparingly so they stand out. And the way you're calling that out, I'm so glad that you're calling it out because we did that by design. Um, you know, when the anthrax moment happens in the show and we talk about something getting sent to the house, there is that just beam of light, of pure white light that comes from the Oculus. The theme there, that was, we did that by design. That happens there and it happens with um, the Brother Eric story. These are these are by design. We, we don't want to do that for 68 full minutes. We want it to happen in just distinct um, parts. So we start by just kind of mastering the PDF. PV will make me just do it on stage. I'll do these tiny black box theaters. And he's like, don't rely on anything. Just rely on the power of your performance and the story. And then what we'll do is we'll slowly build it up to bigger theaters. 
and then add lighting design and stage design. And as we got into lighting and stage design, one of the things that we thought about was there's so much emotionality to this piece of work versus say Patriot Act, which was driven by data viz and graphs. Here, the driving emotions is love, fatherhood, freedom of speech, clout, anger, you know, lies. Those are human emotions. And so I said, one of the ideas that I came up with with Prashant was, what if we used color as a tool to convey this? What if we use light as a tool to convey this? And the master of color and light, in my opinion, is the great James Terrell. So putting me in this gray stone set that was designed by um, an incredible stage designer, Scott Pask, um, and then having him build this Terrellian oval above us with that oculus, and then letting light color the stone walls as we go from act to act to act was was by design. And then sparingly using the rear LED to just provide receipts and context. That's so wonderful. And and going back to something that you were saying right at the beginning about obviously for a stand-up, you usually start with a joke and then take them to the emotional space later. And you know, you you're not just recording this as a special, you've toured this material and played to several different audiences. Yeah. And part of that is always receiving and responding to the audience that you have in the room. And there's always a different dynamic connection, rhythm, and and comedic beat that they find. Um, and so does that change the footing in terms of how you're starting off the show and really looking for that and feeling and responding to it when you're not starting with a joke and you're taking them into a very different space and you have to kind of wait until you see where the comedy is going to land. Yeah, I think there's two things. Um, and they sound like they're opposite ends of the spectrum, but I actually do think they you need both of them equally. It's weird how like some of the most like important things in your life are actually oxymoronic, but that's like life and adult life is is nuanced in that way. You have to have the confidence to live in silence and the humility to iterate. So Prashanth would remind me of this all the time. He's like, slow down and say what you really believe. Forget what they think. If it's true, you should say it. And as we do more performances, let's take what the audience is telling us in its totality after a 70-minute show and have the humility to iterate, listen back to what they're saying, because the audience's laughter, silence, or gasps are responses. They are serving as editors to the material as well, and have the humility to iterate and edit. And I think you need both of those things. And I've, I've constantly tried to vacillate between the two. When I'm first creating, have the confidence to just put it on paper and put it on stage, even if it doesn't make sense yet. And as I continue to perform, I'll let the audience help me edit this thing and get it right. And within your comedy, one of the things that that you're always so wonderful at is having such huge respect for the audience. And, and it's interesting because in this one, you literally talk about the Supreme Court have delineated that audiences are of reasonable intelligence and understanding. Sure. You sure. know, and you're there explaining something like the jurisprudence of jokes yeah. to an audience in a way that they fully engage and understand, even if they've never heard these words or this ideation before. <laughs> yeah, um, they're going crazy. They're going crazy <laughs> for tort law. It's kind of wild. <laughs> 
Yeah. But I but it's an it's actually incredible when you step back and realize the amount of detail that is in a single show and in a really finite amount of time. And so again, kind of going back to the writing stages, how do you kind of look at the larger idea of what it is that you want to tell and then how you really want to distill it down, whether it's okay, if we make this reference, that's something that they understand, or this is where we're going to have a visual on screen to support it. Yeah. I think, wow, these are such great questions. Oh my God, this is the best. I love this. We're nerding out. This is awesome. Okay. So um, my favorite artists, writers, directors are people that are that are essentially um, answering what I think the big questions are. And um, the people that I have, that have shaped my kind of worldview from John Stewart to Spalding Gray, they are masters of framing of like, hey, this is what you're not thinking about. This is really what the issue is at large. So when it comes to jurisprudence of jokes, really the quote unquote cancel culture and censorship dialogue that's happening right now actually comes from a, can you trust the audience or not? From the micro to the macro, what do I mean by that? When Apple takes away the gun emoji from text messaging or when Trump or Talib Kweli are banned from Twitter. What platforms and outlets are trying to discern is they are discerning that are people reasonable enough to be able to make sense of this? And we're going to make an editorial call and say no. That's their right to do. For me as an artist, do I want to pre-censor myself and if I pre-censor myself, I'm actually implicitly saying, I don't trust you. So when Sam, the lawyer, tells me that there is something in law called the reasonable person standard, which justices have written about, and this is their opinion on it, and it's like codified in law, what they are saying is, you should assume the average American is a reasonable person of average intelligence, that they can discern the difference between me fucking around, me being satirical, or me being serious, sincere. And there's countless cases that have supported this. For example, there was a, a famous Warner Brothers case where someone sued Warner Brothers and Looney Tunes because Porky Pig has a stutter and they had a stutter. And the ruling was they dismissed the case because Porky Pig having a stutter does not mean they're ridiculing other people with stutters. Or there was the, the famous case between Donald Trump and Bill Maher, where Bill Maher challenged Trump and said, Donald Trump's mother is a chimpanzee, and therefore that's why he has orange hair. And, and Donald Trump was suing Bill Maher. This is, this is a case, I mean, you can look this up. This was a, this was a case and it was a running, running, um, running thing on Bill Maher's show, but that too had to pass through the reasonable person standard. And why was the, the case dismissed? A reasonable person knows that Bill Maher is joking. A reasonable person of average intelligence knows Donald Trump's mother is not an orange-haired chimpanzee. Or I not. Know. You know what I mean? And that's the beauty. Like, that is the beauty of, of art, you know, of satire specifically as an art form. And so the fact that we were able to distill that in the show, like, I'm really proud of that. And I think it was a way to talk about this issue without using, um, in my opinion, overused Twitter language. It's like, let's zoom out and actually frame this and, and talk about this meaningfully as adults. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm, I'm actually also so interested in your journey into political commentary as such a central part of your comedic voice in the landscape, because yeah. it's obviously something that you're hugely engaged with, you know, not just on stage, but having, you know, testified for certain um, legislation as well. Right. And, you know, when you first started working on The Daily Show, was it something where you had been specifically pursuing and making political comedy a part of your voice? Or do you feel like getting that job on The Daily Show and that opportunity presenting itself really changed the landscape of who you are as a comedian at that point? Yeah, I think The Daily Show um, really became my comedy and philosophy undergrad degree. Learning from John and Trevor, um, just taught me a lot. And the writers, like that group of writers, Jubin Parang, Hallie Hugland, like Steve Bodo, they're incredible, incredible minds. Jen Flans, um, they're incredible comedic minds. And they really gave me um, the comedy broccoli that I needed to mature as an artist. And they really taught me that there were just kind of levels to comedy. I think, you know, humor and being funny, um, that's the necessary condition that you need to tell a great joke. But there are levels to this. Um, just like there's like top shelf liquor and, you know, piss water that you would drink at a frat party. There are levels of jokes and the best types of jokes, of course, make you laugh, but then also make you think about the world in a new and amazing way of like, oh my God, I didn't think about my humanity or this issue or that idea that way. Those to me are, I, I learned at The Daily Show are like top shelf jokes. Um, so I aspire to that. I chase, I chase that. Um, you want to have, give the audience that type of meal, in my opinion. No, that's amazing. And, and, you know, also kind of going back a little bit to what you were saying about initially just having pages and pages of raw material and it really being yeah. something where you're always kind of writing down observations, certain ideas, comment commentary on topics as it's happening in real time. When you're then looking at all of that material and how to build it into a show, you know, like this, where you're talking about, you know, becoming a father, male fertility, freedom of speech, and all these different larger scope topics, yeah. are you kind of going in with a little bit of an idea of, of where you want to broach, or is it about looking at the minutiae of the notes that you've made and that leading to the larger concept? Yeah, it's the latter. The, you just um, start with that. For me, I just start with the raw emotional vomit and then with the help of a director and the audience you start to see the threads and you start to make like connections and believe it or not even the tool of editing lifting the extraneous then pulls two or three exposition scenes together and now as it stacks the story stacked together back to back to back you start to see, or I started to see clearer through lines. Oh, this is a family story. We open with family. We're ending with family. Oh, this really is about drawing lines and, and censorship boundaries for myself vis-a-vis -vis family. Not the stage, not because of autocrats, not because of dictators, not because of platforms. It's a personal line. Um, and that comes from act the actual performance and editing. Yeah. 
there's also a, a great power in comedy and finding moments where you can call back to something earlier in the show. So like brother Eric, you talk about him extensively and then yeah. you come back to the the news footage later. Yeah. Or even, you know, there's there's the great setup for the fact that you show us a tweet of someone saying that you look like a raccoon on Adderall. And uh-huh. then that comes into play later in the legislation segment. Yeah. Um, and so how do you kind of finesse and find where is this going to have the most impact to kind of reference back to something that the audience already have a familiarity with and a comedic connection to um so generally callbacks you'll figure those things out later like um callbacks also serve as a way to bookend particular ideas or topics um and to kind of close the loop on things but i don't i'm not dave Chappelle. i can't i mean dave is someone who can on his first go already have the story exposition tags and callbacks in the whole shebang. He's like brilliant at that. For me, it's a little bit more of sculpting it over time and you find those things and really having a great director is so important. So I can't thank Prashant enough. Uh, Prashant Venkatramanujan, like my collaborator and director here, because he'll all, always check me and go. So explain that further. Okay. So explain that further. Okay. Explain that further. And what he's doing is he's getting me to distill why this thing is important. And that's really, that's really powerful as we're putting together the show. Um, So, yeah. That's so great to have a collaborator like that. And, you know, I've, I've heard you talk previously about, with your comedy that in in essence it's like you're always trying to service the person that you were when you first stepped on stage in 2014 and and when you first kind of did any sort of stand-up show sorry 2004 and you know being this far in your career and particularly doing this show off the back of having done so many episodes of the patriot act where you really got a chance to evolve your voice in new ways how do you feel like this comedy special you were still asking yourself and servicing yourself in terms of who you were as a comedian back in 2004 in the present day? Yeah, I think what's beautiful about art, it's there's such an aspirational quality to it. And I'm always basically trying to be my grandmother's wildest dream. I like that. that's really what it is. So um, when I was 18 and I'm I'm a freshman at UC Davis, I'm always kind of judging things against that to be like, hey, what would UC Davis Hassan think if he was hosting the White House Correspondents Dinner? He'd be like, no way, no way. Like, what if he did a joke about the war in Iraq? Like, and he did it on stage and everybody on, in the world saw it. No fucking, there's no way he would do that. There's no way, it would blow my mind. And by the way, like, I'm always chasing that feeling. I remember I did this event with Iman Vellani, who is who's now Miss Marvel. And I just remember thinking and seeing her. She's 19 years old. And I was just looking at her and I'm like, man, when I first moved to Hollywood in 2009, I never was able to audition for something like this. There are these like, I was having this like Pakistani Jackie Robinson moment through her to be like, you're doing what is like so wild and unknown. Um, And I try to chase that from the micro to the macro, whether it's like a big idea like a movie or a TV show or something as small as just like a joke of being like, what if I went on Ellen and I told her to pronounce my name properly? Because to me, that's just an extrapolation of like what it was like in elementary school and just being like, all right, fine, call me whatever you want. But like, what if I went on like the biggest daytime show and had this moment here? Um, the, 
the test that I always I have to kind of check my heart and my conscience on that I talk about in the show is, are you doing it for the right reason? Or are you doing it for the wrong reason? So are you doing it for the fam? Are you doing it for your grandmother's legacy and Bina and your parents and your kids? Or are you doing it for the gram? Like, are you trying to just have a moment and and dunk on somebody on Twitter for clout? And that is a, a real test that I think um, I've had to deal with, but I think a lot of us have to deal with now that we have these two personas. There's public blue check persona, and then there's private persona. I really, really love hearing all those details, and it's such a fantastic special. So congratulations on everything, and thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for um, nerding out about it. I really appreciate it.